0: I invite you to enter this portal of strange and unimaginable. I simply ask that you suspend your judgment and expand your mind in the vastness of the unknown. Come witness the wonder that is our reality. The truth is out there, and so am I. Wife of a Demon Hunter Extraordinary Tales of All Things Paranormal. Hello, my name is Dorinda Stewart, and I am the Wife of a Demon Hunter. My guest today is from Glasgow, Scotland. He's an international writer, a paranormal investigator, a researcher, and he's served over 10 years on the SSPR, which is the Scottish Society of Psychical Research. Nick Kyle. Welcome, Nick. Hi,
1: Dorinda. Nice to speak with
0: you. It's nice to speak with you too. I'm really excited about this interview because you have done all things paranormal. Um, I consider you one of the major experts in the paranormal uh, phenomenon. So let's talk about your early childhood where you discovered your spirituality.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how comfortable I am being called an expert. Um, probably I would accept expert in stopping phenomena, <laughs> because when I turn up, it tends to have just happened and stopped, and I walk through the door, and there's only a few cases in which things have happened in front of my eyes. Um, yeah, but yeah, I was eight years of age. My father was the local pastor in a West Highland village, uh, South Ballyhoolish, for those of you who know, uh, near Glencoe in Argyleshire. And uh, and I, I was very aware of earth energies. Some of the stones near the river would pulsate with energy. I liked just to sit on them or be beside them. And, uh, and I was very aware of a presence in the church after hours, at night perhaps when the moonlight be streaming through the windows and the door would creak open as I went in and some children would be scared. But I had been brought up to believe, if God be for us, who can be against us? And it gave me an early confidence. And when I began to hear voices, I confided in a, a, a pastor, uh, that I was hearing voices, and he said, oh, that's the Holy Spirit, that's the Holy Ghost, don't worry about it, it's inspirational for, for you. And I didn't have the heart to tell him, that it was actually just my grandmother. Um, I knew her voice, her mannerisms, she shared memories, she showed an ongoing knowledge of what was happening in my life after she had uh, passed on. And, uh, and when I began to realize that there were churches where two-way communication with God was possible, and with deceased persons, uh, I, I began to focus on what some people would call mediumship. And I don't think I'm very successful at it, uh, but I certainly get answers to questions.
0: Yeah, that's uh, I, I like the way that you um, put that because, um, you know, sometimes people have a lot of ego when it comes to mediumships and they think that they, you know, they can do such great things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, you consider yourself some, somewhat of a skeptic.
1: Well, it's just my background is always to look for the evidence. Um, uh, that's what courts do. A lot of people think courts are to establish the truth. Actually, courts are to negotiate the evidence and, uh, and I, I take a similar attitude to paranormal phenomena. I think that's what scientists would do if they devoted enough time and, and effort into investigating it. Uh, look for the evidence and follow the evidence. You know, there's a popular expression, follow the money. Yeah, well, I'm not interested in money, but I follow the evidence. And even if I come up with conclusions that don't suit me, they are inconvenient, they're shocking, surprising, they make me change my ideas, I still focus on the evidence.
0: The truth. You kind of want to look at the, the, the truth. You're like a truth seeker in a way. Would, yeah. would you say that? Yeah. Scotland is considered like the holy grail of ghost hunting. So tell us your <laughs> favorite hot spot of ghost hunting places.
1: <laughs> I mean, I find that funny to hear people talk like that. I think ghosts will be wherever people are. And yeah. uh, some hauntings are in old-fashioned ancient buildings, uh, monuments, uh, graveyards, and, and so on. But actually, there are just as many ghosts to be found in people's houses and, and communities uh, that are more modern. Uh, but, yeah, I've been to several castles in Scotland, and, uh, and uh, old uh, hotels, uh, and I've met um, people who have had very varied experiences of poltergeists and uh, other hauntings that seem to recur according to the calendar in certain times. Um, uh, sometimes I've been able to converse with these spirit people. Uh, sometimes I've just seen them or heard them or felt a presence. Um, but I, I'm fortunate to know some paranormal investigators that have come up with stunning evidence, such as my friend uh, Michele Di Nicastro from Italy, something of, of a parapsychologist in Italy who is known for his writing and his research. And he has not just met ghosts in castles in Italy, but photographed them, filmed them, and uh, and got thermal imaging uh, cameras to to capture them um and he's got some startling and maybe even shocking electronic voice phenomena
0: interesting um so What would you say, what made it so that he could get those things and other people can't? What do you think was the difference? Because, you know, people out there are ghost hunting and trying to find all these different things. And, and, you know, Scotland, because of the old, you know, know, Europe is older than the Americas. And so the buildings are a little bit more ancient. So that we always feel that there's going to have a lot more history there. So do you feel that there is a certain talent or... What do you think makes a good ghost hunter?
1: Oh, that's that's two or three questions there. Um, <laughs> first of all, first of all, the difference between my friend or myself and and less successful investigators is who does the work. If you get up your your yourself up and out into locations, if you're careful in how you approach people and their stories, if you keep good notes and you can see patterns and recreate situations, I I think you are more likely to get close to understanding the phenomena. If you sit in your armchair and read a magazine and then come up with an opinion, I'm afraid you will be very often off the mark. Uh, Armchair critics uh, aren't really worth the time of day. But if you get up and you explore, yeah. Yeah, and as you as you said earlier, just providing ego doesn't get in the way. Most of the work I do is not publicised, not uh, written up. Uh, I I don't take money for what I do, and I prefer not to seek publicity for what I do. But it sometimes happens.
0: So, not to take publicity, what do you think that that cheapens it, or what? What is what's the reason for that?
1: Well, I, I mean. Someone, a medium once said to me, when, when ego walks in, spirit walk out. Yeah. And that's, and that's not, not completely accurate, but it's a, a general point to me. Ego interferes with spiritual connection and spiritual communication. And ego very often is selfish in seeking to monetize what are spiritual gifts. And that's just something I'm not interested in. Uh, Other people can do it. I mean, you know, people who are eager to get in television uh, or or in the media, eager to get a name for themselves and who charge a lot of money, um, they may well have a, a gift, but I don't think it lasts very long when their motives are essentially selfish.
0: Yeah, I used to always think that um, the reason why a psychic uh, it would charge two or three hundred dollars for a reading is because she has a husband or they have someone else that can support them while they're doing that, you know. And then there's people that charge just, you know, just to get the information, just you know, for an exchange of energy or whatever. But yeah, so.
1: I, I have several mediumistic friends and investigator friends who need to charge something because right. they've given up a career in order to do this and they still want to be able to pay their bills right but um i think it's you you can judge very easily very quickly from the amount and from the person's motivation as to are they really wanting to understand spirit so they can share that understanding with people who are seeking like themselves um or are they are they interested in puffing themselves up with Mm -hmm. lots of books and videos and tv programs Sure. And and people who do appear in the public eye they may well have a genuine gift but I think they're they're missing an opportunity to use it for for the greatest good. So I will work with someone whether they can pay me or not. Right,
0: right, right. Well you need the petrol to get there sometimes that's what we always say you know because you know you know what Joe and I do you know we're we're demon hunters there's no money in it but we do, you know when somebody donates uh, you know some money for gas that helps but um, my question to you Nick is do you think that everyone is psychic in some way is it like a muscle or do you think that there are people that just have better gifts than or that are special with gifts and people that are not
1: okay let me answer your question by firing one back. can you run Duranda? yes yeah why aren't you in the Olympics
0: um, because I haven't trained for that. <laughs> so so you do believe so, that people yeah. have that gift. There. I think
1: everyone has an intuitive awareness. Mm-hmm. We have different words for it in different cultures, you know, hunches, uh, gut feeling, and, and a sense of being stared at, a sense of presence, and so on. Um, but everyone has a basic level of awareness. I think it's a survival quality we've developed and evolved. But that doesn't mean to say you can stand on a platform and have an 80% success rate such as some of my friends have.
0: Did you say 80%? Is that what you said? 80? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I thought you said I tested, 8%. I've, I go 8%. No,
1: 80, 80%. <laughs> okay. Um, I've tested one or two mediums, and they vary from 75% to 80 Seven percent, maybe. I don't expect perfection in any field of human endeavour, so I don't expect it from mediums. But I do think if you can consistently get 75 percent or more, there is there is a gift at work that should be developed. Everyone can benefit from training, from feedback, from uh, meditation or expanded consciousness.
0: Yeah, I think so too. So I so I think it's like a muscle that you have to work on. So there are the people that, I mean, you can get a room full of psychics and get several different information, which I find interesting too. You know, when you go on a ghost ghost hunt, and then you know, one will hear from the the old lady that's there, and one will hear from the child that lived there, and one will li- you know hear from somebody else, the neighbor or whatever. So I find that really interesting too. So in your research, have you guys studied that?
1: um yeah yeah are you familiar with the the a, a picture which is sometimes used with children in schools a picture uh, of a, an elephant mm-hmm. and each of the children are blindfolded and one's got a hold of the trunk and one's got a hold of a tail and one's got a hold of a foot and another's got a hold of an ear and none of them can figure out the animal they've got they've all got different opinions but actually the person standing looking can see clearly it's different parts of an elephant children quite like to go through that exercise um even if it's just on a on a whiteboard because they they understand that everybody can have a little bit of the of the puzzle and very few people can have the whole picture at once and i think uh, mediumship can be a little bit like that Uh, i have uh, friends that are clairvoyant meaning they can see spirit. I have friends who are clear clairaudient, they can hear spirit. I have friends, including myself, who are clear uh, sentient, they feel in their bodies information, are clear cognizant, they simply have a thought, but they don't know how they came to have it. And there are obviously other types of sensitivities to do with smell and taste and, uh, and, sometimes mediums will have more than one sense uh, active. Um, so it, it can vary a lot. But if truth is a unitary concept, you know, if there is a thing as one truth, then a bunch of psychics all disagreeing with each other, I don't think they're all correct.
0: Right. right. They, might,
1: they might all have a piece of the puzzle, but they're all egotistically saying their bits bright, and other people's might be wrong. And they puff themselves up, but they do so by putting others down. I'm not interested in that. If I look down on someone, it's only to find a way of pulling them up and helping.
0: That's a good way of thinking about it. So that's why you're in this, this research and doing those things. You've investigated several haunted places with your lovely wife, Sarah. And I was able to talk with her on this forum um, a few weeks back. Um, so tell us what you consider most haunted in Scotland.
1: Most haunted places? in Scotland,
0: Scotland. Mm mhm.
1: Okay. Um, well, my knowledge of the west of Scotland is far better than my knowledge of the east or extreme north of Scotland, where I've been to these places, but I spend most of my time investigating the west coast because it's near where I live. So right up and down the West Coast, there's Highland Second Sight, which is accepted in small rural communities. There are castles and there are ancient monuments. Just across the water from where I live in Inverkip, uh, there uh, there are places in which there are more ancient monuments in a 15 mile radius than anywhere in, in Europe, certainly in Northern Europe. And when you go to these places, you, you, I pick up an energy, a feeling from the very ground, from the stones that I touch. And uh, I'm sure that the stories of hauntings there go back uh, many years. Nearby, a uh, short uh, driving distance, there's the town of Inverere with the haunted jail and uh, the public can visit it. Uh, a hotel which is allegedly uh, haunted and two or three different people have confirmed uh, with their own experience I lived as I said in South um and certainly the area around there was haunted um, but haunted Scotland should not be a surprise to anyone who knows its bloody history <laughs> and I think there is unfinished business on the agenda of a lot of ghostly persons who return um you know their life was maybe cut short but there's something i'll say dorinda which is not generally kind of talked about and, and i think it, it it's correct ghosts don't hang around forever right. right initially they will be full of thoughts and emotions with their body and the place that they lived and memories and loved ones they have left behind and so on But over time, and we are speaking here of a number of years, those loved ones also pass over to the spirit side. And spirit people continue to learn and work and evolve in the spirit world. So their attention is pulled away over time to other people that need help, to other places. And that's why I think you don't often get ghosts from centuries ago. You're more likely to get ghosts who still have emotional bonds with the living.
0: Yeah, because they're very attached. They're usually attached to something, ghosts are this, why they're staying in those particular areas. But that's interesting that you say, say that because one of the things that Joe and I don't do is we don't do the commercial haunting stuff. We usually go to people's homes, which I know you and Sarah do that as well. Um, because it seems washed and it's because you know like you said the spirits probably have moved on and new things have come about so that's interesting that you said that
1: Um, one of the things that your listeners might want to know is okay if you've been investigating hauntings for 30 or 40 years what are the experiences you've had that are unputdownable you know the ones that you just were transformed by that, you can't erase from your memory because they were so powerful. And I can give you a few examples uh, just quickly. Sure. I I have I have spoken to ghosts, uh, if you like, uh, spirit people who have materialized in front of witnesses. I have shook hands with ghost uh, ghost men. I have hugged ghost children. I more than once. I have uh, seen uh, people uh, levitate, uh, objects levitate, objects appear, we call them apports, and objects disappear inexplicably. I've seen furniture shoot through the ceiling without damaging it, and uh, and also through the wall right beside my head and return into the room sometimes, never damaged, with no cracks in the plaster or anything else. I've uh, been touched by ghost dogs and uh, the wagging tail uh, under the dining table. It happened uh, just a few years ago, um, but uh, that's these things are quite separate from what I call mental mediumship, which is saying, "Oh, I have your mother here, and she wants you to to see, to know that she saw you buy something the other day." and you know, if you go to a certain drawer, there'll be something in it of value. And so these are evidence of shared memories and sometimes are dismissed as cold reading or telepathy. But what stands out for me is the physical mediumship the the stuff that you can touch, you can feel, you can and uh, and light orbs which are often dismissed as uh, photographic anomalies i've touched them i've held them in my hand i've mm-hmm. felt them buzz around uh, sarah's had them go into her body and so on these are experiences one does not forget ever i think i'll take them to my own grave
0: well thank you for sharing those i really appreciate that that's uh that's very fascinating um one of the things you talked about was physical um table tipping let's get into that because i've seen some um, videos of you with some table tipping which i find right. very fascinating so talk about that a little bit what is that phenomenon called
1: yeah well i'm not aware of any video footage out there um of me engaging in table tipping but uh, i have done it many times um okay uh, there is a, there are two types of table tip- tipping yeah there's one where the participants go, sit round a table, which is often circular, and put their fingers on top rather than underneath. And the table seems to tilt from side to side, usually staying in one or two legs out of three or four. Um, but uh, occasionally rising right into the air so there's no contact with the floor and the table bounces or floats around. I would say it's easy to dismiss that as some kind of ideomotor effect, some kind of subconscious manipulation through uh, the muscles with even the people touching the table don't appreciate that they are slightly pushing it. And I've, I've deliberately, as a test, tried to push a table with just my fingertips and it's quite easy. So that kind of table tipping May, might be evidential for the people doing it, you know, they, they experience the, the table moving. But I'll tell you a different category of table tipping, which I think is uh, far superior. And it's when you let the table go and it still floats. Ah. And you let the table go and no one's touching it and it still dances about. Or it pushes forcibly into someone much more than a fingertip could allow. In, in other words... It might start off as bouncing around and answering questions with one tap or two, meaning yes or no, but but it should quite quickly escalate into perhaps only having one finger on the table per person and then none and the table still moves. I'm interested in that latter category because there are too many problems with the former category for me to regard the anything other than a training for the other type of phenomena. And I have seen in bright electric light, large tables lift several inches off the ground and hover with no one touching it. But these things are on the rear side.
0: Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I've never you know I've never experienced that and anyone that I've um, ever encountered here in the States have never seen that either. So that's why I find that really fascinating. So, so um, you talked about castles. What is your favorite haunted castle there? So like, let's just say a ghost hunter wants to come to Scotland and find the most haunted castle, which castle would you recommend for them in Scotland?
1: Well, we're kind of spoiled for choice. Um, my favorite would be Stirling Castle. Okay, Stirling is in west, uh, east central Scotland. Um, and, uh, and I've been there much more often than I have been to another haunted location, which is Edinburgh Castle. But I, I, I think every castle will have a ghost which may or may not still be active. You've got grey ladies and green ladies and ladies with red eyes and you know, ladies in long dresses and so on. Some soldiers too. Some of them have been photographed. And good quality photographs, but you would think the person might be translucent, but you can see clearly what they're wearing in their outline. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, there's there are, there's a photograph like that in Stirling Castle. And if you speak to the staff in the castles rather than the passing visitors and tourists, you will realize that some of these are recurring ghostly visitations and you can almost set the clock and the calendar by some of them
0: wow um there's a new show out called "Haunted scotland um gail porter chris fleming have you watched that are you guys yeah. are you familiar with that show well they had talked about broderick castle um and the broderick yeah. castle and the isle broderick. of Arran, and uh the Bro-
1: yeah, it's called Brodick.
0: Brodick, sorry. Um, and it's uh, they talk about fairies there too. So yeah. I know yeah. that you kind of, you know some things about fairies. So talk yeah. about that for a little bit.
1: There's a sign next door which says I'm away with the fairies. <laughs> and it's obviously a little joke, but um, uh, no, I think fairies do exist. Uh, let me uh, tell you about Brodick Castle just a little bit. I can almost see it from my house window. Huh? It's just a little just a few miles round the bend of the the shore and it's uh it's minutes away by travelling by ferry. Uh, And Brodick Brodick, as a town and as an area has various ghost stories attached, some of which involve my family. But Mm -hmm. Brodick Castle itself is a good example of a small Scottish castle, which has an armory collection, which has strong stories that have lingered in the community. But you see, if you have stories like that, perhaps it's in someone's interest to keep the tourists coming. You know i i always wonder where someone has a commercial interest in promoting stories can you rely on them as much as someone with no financial interest so i i would agree brodick has a a ghostly history but i wouldn't elevate it beyond anywhere else myself as far as fairies are concerned Uh, I've got several things to say. First of all, in South Balhoolish, where I grew up as a child, there were fairy mounds known to locals. It was just—it was not something particularly special. Someone would say that little hillock there. Uh, the fairies used to live there, but they've move, now moved over to this hillock, perhaps half a mile away or something. And they move around. They don't like attention, and when things get too busy, they move to somewhere quieter. And I once went to a, a a home that had a large hillock, uh, a small mound that you might you imagine children might climb to pretend they're mountain climbing or something, something within the space of a large garden. And when I went to the the, the homeowner, uh, he was fairly new, and I said to him, "Can I take photographs of your garden, in particular the fairy mound?" And he said, oh, yes, he said, by all means, he said, but the fairies are no longer there. They moved out shortly after we moved in, he said, and I've not seen one for several years. But but when you have a conversation like that with someone, what's obvious is, yeah, but you did see them at one time. He went, oh, yeah, it was, you know, it wasn't a big deal.
0: Yeah, like Um, every day for you guys, right? (laughs) Yeah, I saw the fairies. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, I have a book, uh, or had a book, I don't know if I've still got it, or I loaned it out to a friend, I think, in which there are uh, photographs of ghosts, uh, of fairies, sorry, and they are uh, quite large, you know, they're almost human-sized, and and they're very difficult to just dismiss and explain away. They either have to be a, a CGI-type hoax uh, days before CGI had been invented, uh, or they're genuine. I think uh, they are of such good quality, um, and uh, I can send you an example uh, later if you want.
0: Yeah, um, I would, I'd because, be interested in that for sure. Yes. Yeah,
1: one of the photographs. It was claimed that the person, the fairy in the photograph, introduced herself as the queen of the fairies, mm. and she looks like an old woman, rather than with wings, but uh, rather than the typical little cherubs that children might uh, imagine. Um, The other thing I'll say about fairies is a theory I have, and it it covers angels too. Um, My friend Michele Dini Castro captured an infrared and thermal image of a ghost soldier, which was approximately 40% of the size of a human being, maybe 50%. And... uh, uh, And it was perfectly formed. It wasn't dwarfish in any sense, uh, but it was smaller, scaled down. And when I asked Michele, why did he think that the ghost soldier scaled himself down? He said, oh, that's obvious. It's in order to be seen. If he was his normal full size, the light would be fainter. You might not notice it. You might have to wait until darkness to uh, realize there's a gleam there in some way. But if, if the soldier focuses himself down to a tiny form, a smaller form, the light bleeds into our visual spectrum for eyesight. The light is stronger. Now, someone once said to me that angels can be seven, eight, nine feet tall, and that's their natural kind of space. But if they want to be seen, they can shrink themselves down to human size, and that means the light is brighter. So my theory is that sometimes there's not enough energy. So the beings, angels or interdimensional uh, communicators, they scale themselves down to just a few inches, but only so you can see them, because when they blow themselves back up to their normal size, in their thinking, in their projections, They're still there, but they're invisible to you because there's not enough energy to make the light strong enough for you to see them. So I I, I think when fairies are seen as very small, it's because they wanted you to see them. And they may well still be around, but in their normal size or height, they're invisible to us. My friend Michele has one theory that they might be visible under uh, uh, ultraviolet light. And he's advised me to buy an ultraviolet lamp when I'm videoing to see if it catches more than we can see with the naked eye.
0: That's very fascinating. I learned something today. You know, as a Native American, we do have what we call little people as well. But the the lore never talked about, you know, they were always just the size small, you know, that they were little. And that's interesting how, you know, if they were big, you can't see them. But to condense down to see, I, I find that very fascinating. Thank you for sharing with that. You talked a little bit about Archie Roy. Um, He was a leading uh, Scottish astronomer astronomer who was interested in the uh, psychic research and earned him the nickname of Glasgow Ghostbusters. Now, I know that that's probably an American version of it, but um, he was a mentor to you. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yes, Archie Roy is an esteemed professor of astronomy. He died several years ago, but during his career, He's written several astronomical textbooks, quite quite a few novels, and a small number, maybe just one or two books on the paranormal. But he was president of the Society for Psychical Research in London, uh, one of the oldest and most prestigious organizations investigating the paranormal, mainly in in the UK, but they do have a worldwide presence. And he was president of that. And when he came up to Scotland, where he lived, he had people approaching him asking, where can we get activities and lectures, just as you have in your organisation in London? So he set up a Scottish society for psychical research, a Scottish SPR, and he became the president and founder of that, while he was also the president of the London one. And that meant really that he was one of the highest profile academics in the UK to take paranormality seriously. And uh, I attended some of his introductory lectures. My friend, it was a physics professor, and I both went up to him at the end and said, can we have more, please? Is there a a second series of lectures on spiritualism? uh, And uh, he said, well, no, there's not. He said, but I'm about to start a society for that very purpose. My friend and I joined the society, and I persevered until eventually I became a committee member and a, a president, a vice president, president. And I was president for 10 years. But when I retired from my teaching career, or at least semi-retired, I wanted to travel the world and do a bit of writing and so on and, and I decided to let the society go to younger people who had their own ideas about running it. And uh, I'm still a lifelong member, an honorary life member, and I still support the, the committee and I wish them well in everything they do. But I think since Arthur Roy's uh, passing, the society has naturally gotten smaller. Because it was Archie Roy that pulled 200 people in on a cold winter's night. Whereas now, our audience, even with the help of the internet, our audiences can be hybrid and much smaller.
0: You and Sarah went on a trip to New York. You were in the United States just recently. So, what was that trip about? It was a haunting?
1: Uh, No, no. Uh, When we went to New York, it was just to experience the vibe and and the feeling and and maybe visit one or two places, including the uh, American uh, Society for Psychical Research. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it was closed at the time for extensive renovations. Um, but it was good to see movie locations. I'm a bit of a movie buff, so I like to see places in Central Park and so on and the Times Square that I'd only ever seen on television or the cinema screen. But perhaps you're getting mixed up with a case that I investigated in Seattle. Okay. In which Sarah wasn't with me. I went with an investigator in, from Manchester in the UK, uh, possibly one of the best investigators in the UK, Steve Mira. And Steve was going over to Seattle for the second time to quieten down an allegedly demonic haunting, which had flared up months after his first visit. And when I heard about this, I offered to go with him as an independent observer. And the deal that I made was, if I see any uh, uh, bad practice, I'll call it out. If I don't, I'll tell anyone in the world that what I saw was genuine and fairly investigated properly investigated so i went with steve um at my own expense and uh, i watched as he worked uh, with a medium and with the homeowner in a house which was definitely haunted i don't think it was a demonic haunting i think it was a mischievous possibly even malevolent kind of haunting doing real damage setting things on fire and so on but i didn't personally come across any demons but remember what i said at the start dorinda if I am an expert, it's in stopping things. Right. I don't know. I don't know how that works. But I walk through the door, and things begin to calm down, and <laughs> eventually they disappear. And I'm still bewildered as to why that happens. Um, I'm not a religious person. I can't claim Christ consciousness and and control uh, things. Uh, but I do have a, an open-minded skepticism, and I think. Attitudes can both in, uh, increase or decrease uh, one's experiences of phenomena.
0: Well, the reason why I talked about New York was I was trying to make a segue to um, uh, um, Salem, Massachusetts. I had the opportunity to go, um, Joe and I had the opportunity to go to Salem, Massachusetts, um, where we had our own American version of the witch trials. But Scotland has its own witch trials um, before us. And so can you tell us about the witch hunts that took place in Scotland?
1: Well, um, in the late 1600s, uh, the king at the time and uh, the, uh, the landed gentry and uh, intellectual establishment, they were all centered in and around the capital of Scotland, which is Edinburgh. And when superstition uh, was widespread, uh, remember at that time there was no national education. You only get educated if you could pay for it. Um, the uh, the superstitions that went about were dismissed uh, summarily by the powers that be, and then eventually uh, ideas of witchcraft uh, promoted by uh, King James at the time. The um, the uh, they developed into um, a book on how to identify witches, but it was demonstrably n- nonsense. You know, right. it was: do you have a third <laughs> nipple? And uh, you know, uh, if you if you get tortured uh, uh, to death, uh, then that and, and you say nothing, that means you were innocent.
0: Whereas if you say, no, no,
1: no, I'm a, I'm a witch, you, know, you, would, you, would li- you would live a little longer because they would want more information about other witches from you. And most witches were accused on the basis of someone else naming them. They didn't need advice. If you were to be uh, decided, if someone decided you were a witch and you gave six names, that's six new witches. To be persecuted and wow. interrogated and killed now in salem massachusetts uh, forgive me if i don't have the precise numbers but it's to give you uh, the gister the sense of the story in salem massachusetts there were actually three villages in the area of salem that made up that region of massachusetts and there were approximately nineteen thousand people living there perhaps less Um, And they they killed uh, approximately 19 within a short time frame. Uh, I'm sure they probably did it before and after. But Salem, Massachusetts is known for a particular outbreak of hysteria where uh, 16, maybe 19, were killed. Mm -hmm. But as a proportion of the population, it was very small. Right. Over in Scotland, lots of witches were being accused, persecuted, interrogated and uh, killed, executed. But the, the powers that be didn't want to do it in Edinburgh for fear there would be civil unrest. So they took them to a local town called Haddington and they killed them there. So the, all the, the stuff was done in Edinburgh until it came to the execution and they were taken to Haddington. So that's the worst place in Scotland. But the second worst place in Scotland is the tiny village that I live in. Uh, at, in, the, in the late 1600s, there were approximately 200 people living in the village of Innerkip, or as we now call it, Inver. And out of those 200 people, 35 were persecuted for witchcraft and 33 of them were women. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not about witchcraft. That's about misogynistic males abusing women because they had the power to do that. In those days, a landowner could execute you and he wouldn't get into much trouble because he had that level of power. He just had to have a reason. So, lots of things could make you be accused of being a witch including healing mm. including being a midwife because if your healing was particularly impressive people would say ah well that's the devil even the local minister who healed someone was accused of working with the devil because he took money that was donated by the person who had received the healing and for taking money he he was accused of being in league with the devil. In his case, he was given a warning that if he repeated it, he would be next in the flames, or next to be hung. Uh, and uh, history doesn't always record the method uh, of execution. Sure. But even to be banned in those days from your community was a death sentence because there was no social service, kind of national health care. Basically, you would starve to death. In many cases, if you were banned, even to help someone who's banned would incur the death penalty.
0: Wow. Well, the the Salem, um, a lot of it they thought um, had to do. You know, there was a set of women, girls, young girls that were accusing, and uh, you know, bad bread. You know, a bad rye bread they were talked about. But a lot of people believe that the Salem was a um, land grab sort of thing too, to get to get land. Yeah. Um, And
1: and here in Scotland too, Dorinda, if there was a neighbourhood dispute, you very often found that one neighbour accused the other of being in league with the devil, and that neighbour was taken away, leaving the the dispute clearly in the favour of the accuser.
0: Yeah. What's interesting in Salem is that now everybody walks around with, you know, witch hats and stuff on there. You know, they all, they're all dressed like witches down there in Salem. I found that really interesting because, you know, you were prosec- you know, persecuted as a witch and now you walk around, you know, with all your little casting stuff on you. So it's interesting. I, so.
1: I, I think it's important to remember uh, what happened. Uh, so there's a local town called Paisley, uh, just a, about 30 minutes drive from where I am. And there they killed nine witches in, at one particular point in time. And uh, last year, 10,000 people went on a march through the town to remember the nine that were killed. Wow.
0: that's, a, my, that's In my
1: little village, nobody marches to remember the 19. Right. Sorry, sorry. The 35 35 yeah killed. yeah um but we've got a little memorial uh, information board there are plans to get an apology from the scottish government and to put up a larger memorial but these are difficult times financially and it may take a while to achieve sure. uh, the, the aims i'm a kind of uh, an onlooker i'm not a supporter I've made my research available to people. I hold uh, occasional di- meetings to discuss uh, local issues such as witchcraft. Um, and I know uh, three witches who live in the village, one of whom is still practicing, um, but they wish to stay anonymous.
0: Even even today, they want, wish to stay anonymous. Um, yeah,
1: because yeah, they claim <laughs> persecution is still right. Sure. yeah,
0: Sure. So... Um, you know, we have a, a modern term of witchcraft called Wicca. So do they use the term Wicca there in Scotland as well? Or
1: They, they can do. Uh, not so much in Scotland. Uh, up in England, I know they do. But um, there are various forms of Wicca or paganism
0: mm-hmm.
1: or um, uh, uh, ritual magic. Uh, Which are used. uh, Some claim historical roots in druidry and so on, Um, but I'm not familiar with um, in detail with what they do. I've edited a book on uh, magical rituals, but that doesn't mean to say I believe in it. Sure, I I did, you know, a a publication uh, service. Um, As far as uh, the the beliefs of the witches that I know personally. Uh, some people would call them hedge witches. Mm-hmm. In other words, local natural herbal remedies and spells. That would be
0: more of the, the healing arts. Of it. Healing arts. Yes,
1: right? yes. And I once said to someone, "You are black. Is it black magic or white magic you practice?" And they burst out laughing and said, "You obviously know nothing." And at that time, I would agree. And they said, <laughs> "Is a car good or evil?" And I said, "Well, it depends the use the card is put to." And they said, "Precisely the same for magic. Magic itself is using, focusing your will, yeah, for selfish reasons or for the benefit of others, and uh, and both work. So uh, that's why I was told." Th-
0: th- I, you know, we always they always say good witch, you know, white witches or you know, black witches, black magic. It's, it is interesting, but um, you're right. It's the intention. You know, when you put a you know spell or a recipe, I always call it like a recipe. Uh, what is your intention for that recipe? So that's very interesting.
1: I've got I've got a current case. Uh, I'll be dealing with it in the next couple of days, uh, in which uh, African magic is affecting some people in in the UK.
0: Ah, voodoo and, or hoodoo? I yeah, mean. Okay. yeah,
1: yeah, uh, West uh, African magic uh, practiced uh, by village elders and, uh, and it's powerful uh, by uh, reputation. It can kill you mm-hmm. uh, by reputation. But it's strange because when people in the UK were told that they were the subject of curses and spells that would be life-threatening, they were told if they paid a sum of money and I'm guessing it's more than a few hundred dollars, I'm guessing <laughs> yeah. it's a few thousand, uh, spells could be initiated that would remove the original curse. Right. But if you don't pay, other spells would be used to double and worsen the original curse. And of course, I think this is scamming. I think this is uh, falsity and hoaxing. But I also believe that in the power of magic, because of people who have made their lives work uh using spells like this i do think that they are in touch with forces that are beyond reason
0: mm. and it has to be respectful that's the problem is that you know even with the voodoo and the hoodoo it's like you have to be respectful you know with evil you know how they work with it is you have, they have to be respectful because it can be kind of powerful in some ways but again is um you know the the mental issues of the people that are being cursed or what you know was involved um, sometimes that has a lot to do with it, too. So if you believe you're being cursed, then you probably are cursed if you believe it. So it's a belief system sometimes, you know. So, I,
1: I, I agree. And I think that if you're a victim and you believe yourself to be a victim, it makes it, it makes it harder to help the person.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. I yeah.
1: might actually be coming to you, uh, Dorinda, and, uh, and your husband, Joe, uh, to ask for advice in that case but I'm, uh, I am I need more time to discuss it.
0: Sure, sure. We're, you know, we're here to help if we can. So we appreciate it. Well, Nick, this has been very fascinating. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to talk with me and to be here. Um, do you have any other things that you'd like any our anyone, our audience to know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like to uh, uh, mention that several years ago, I went to meet some, uh, paranormal investigators at a social event in Ontario and it was a, a kind of barbecue and it was it was lovely to be invited and and it, they were great company and very friendly towards my wife and I from from Scotland. but everyone round the fire was invited to contribute a story, a poem a, you know a song perhaps um, and i I posed a question and the question was this. If you were on your deathbed and you had the ability to write on a postcard sized piece of paper, a truth which you had discovered as a result of your life's work, your life's efforts, a truth worth passing on because you knew it to be true, you were very confident. What would you write to your children before you left? And a man went to answer me very quickly and his wife said, but that's not as a result of what you've done, uh, my dear. She said, you saw that in television. Mm. And someone else (laughs) went to speak and someone said, but it wasn't that in a book that was written. So round the fire, we calculated there were more than two centuries of active psychic paranormal investigations that had been done by the people round the fire and they struggled to come up with a realization of what they had learned firsthand. that was worth passing on
0: that yeah, is worth passing on
1: so so about six years later sarah and i returned same group same barbecue fire <laughs> um and uh, and we were recognized and i i heard a, a canadian voice say there he is That's the guy from Scotland that caused all that trouble because we've been discussing it every year since. He said, and I've now got your answer. And I said, okay, do you remember the terms of the question? It has to be first-hand experience, hard-won, not from any other source. He said, yes. I said, and what have you learned that's worth passing on to your children on your deathbed? He said, love is all. Love is all. And I said, well, you know, I think that's a really good answer, a good realization, but it's not mine. I said, it's probably better than mine. I said, but I'll tell you what mine is. There is more to life than can be touched or measured. Go find it because it exists.
0: Perfect. Thank you.
1: and, And both answers, I think, should give your audience pause for thought.
0: I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Thank you for that. All right. Well, this is Dorinda Stewart, wife of a demon hunter. Until next time.